There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Research shows that the driving motivation for Indigenous people to support this is they believe that this is a unifying moment. And that is true to our culture. We are a sharing collective culture, and that is why I think the Uluru Statement was endorsed so emphatically, you know, that it invites the Australian people to share who we are. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Well, this episode is something of an explainer of a beautifully wild idea, at least in my opinion, the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. And my guest today is Thomas Mayo, a truly remarkable man in his own right. He's one of the most beautifully wild voices on the spirit and the hand held out invite that is the voice. And I've asked him to join us during one of his trips in from Darwin to explain, well, it all. Now, I know there are still many of you out there who are a bit unsure of what the voice actually is or perhaps what it is not. Now, top line, and of course, we'll get into it further in this episode. In about October or November this year, there will be a referendum, which is a vote whereby every Australian of voting age must decide if a change to the constitution should be enacted. These referendums happen very, very rarely in Australia. There's only been 44. And they're designed with a lot of safeguards in place to ensure it's really, really, really wanted by the people. It requires a majority of the people in a majority of the states and a majority of the people overall. So it's a double majority. So far, only eight referendums have got up in Australia's history, one of which, of course, was the change to the Constitution to give First Nations people the vote in 1967. So in this historic referendum, we will be voting on whether we agree to the idea, the overall principle, of altering the Constitution to very belatedly recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing a voice. That's it. It's pretty simple. Now, this voice will be a representative body that will advise Parliament and advise only and only on matters that directly affect First Nations people. So, yes, it's a very modest change. And in many ways, it's a symbolic one. That said, this modest symbolic move 
has also been shown to work. It just works. It works around the world. When Indigenous people are consulted on issues that affect their people, you get better outcomes. And in a country where the gap between First Nations people and the rest of Australia is getting bigger, and where nothing else has worked to close the gap for decades in spite of all kinds of efforts, and we are the only colonised nation in the world that does not have a provision in the constitution like this, you could say it's something that just needs to be done. It's time. It's important to know that extraordinary care and work, decades in fact, has been put into devising the voice as a solution. It is one of three proposals that emerged from the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2016. These three proposals are a voice to parliament, a macarada or agreement process, and a treaty. The Uluru Statement itself took years of deep consultation with Indigenous communities and elders around the country. Okay, so to my guest, Thomas Mayo is a Coorag Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander man raised in Darwin. At 17, he became a wharf labourer and he is now an official of the Maritime Union of Australia, chairperson of the Northern Territory Indigenous Labour Network. He advises the Diversity Council of Australia. He's a signatory to the historical Uluru Statement and he is one of the advocates for The Voice. He was also chosen to travel throughout Australia for 18 months with the Uluru Statement. And yes, it is actually a physical statement and a beautiful thing to see, taking it to the smallest of communities, to large city gatherings, basically educating Australians on this whole thing. His patient, kind commitment to educating Australia on this movement is profound, and you'll get a sense of this in a moment. In his spare time, he's written five books for adults and children on race, fatherhood, the Uluru Statement, and his latest book, which he wrote with ABC veteran Kerry O'Brien, is called The Voice to Parliament Handbook, and it comes out this month. This episode is a really important one to me, and I've done it so that you can best follow the conversation in readiness for your vote, and so that you can share it with friends and family in the months leading up to the referendum, which as I say, will occur in October or November this year. I've also designed it so that overseas listeners can get an understanding of this history-making event that's taking place. In the show notes, I will put a link to the Uluru Statement, also to the question that we're going to be asked at the referendum and a whole bunch of other resources. So make sure you check it out. But let's now get to the interview. Thomas, welcome to Wild. It's wonderful to have you here in my sort of makeshift studio, my, my study here. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Good to be here with you. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. We've tried to organise a conversation about this for a couple of years now, but I think this is the perfect time. It really is, yeah. It's all mm. coming to a head. We've got a question. We've got the words. Peter Dutton has come out with a position against it. and We now know where he stands. Yeah. We'll get to that in a moment. That's handy. Yeah, but look, I, I've been intrigued. I've followed your story. I follow you on Instagram and I've followed you from sort of pre-election, your trade union stuff. It's really an interesting story. But you're essentially a quiet Torres Strait Islander kid, or at least that's how you started out. And I know you were quite reserved and shy, but you had a teacher, I think it was in year 11, an English teacher, who told you that be a great writer, you should be a writer, but instead you became a wharfie at the age of 17. You had kids pretty young. But 
Along the way, you learned to be a person, a man in this country who speaks up on behalf of others. How and why did that happen? Well, it really was through the trade union movement, you know, being a member of the, the union, the Maritime Union of Australia on the wharves. Being on the wharves in the 1998 Patrick's dispute, I was only 20 years old when all that went down and feeling that, um, you know, with, with two babies, feeling that that great job that I had and, um, you know, good wages, good conditions, a job that I enjoyed was suddenly taken away from me in the middle of the night. There's a really interesting thing to think about here with what happened under Howard and trying to silence the voice of maritime workers because that happened in 1998 and the, the, the goal that they had was to destroy the Maritime Union of Australia, a strong union with an important part in the logistics chain. Because you see unions, the reason why they were respected and, and should be respected is because unions have done so much that workers and the general public take for granted. Mm. Universal health care, for example, you know, the Medicare system is something that unions negotiated and achieved, you know, with a lot of hard work and sacrifice. The superannuation system is something, again, that wasn't just given to workers, wasn't just given to Australians. It was, it came from struggle, from workers mm. uniting. And so Howard's strategy was to silence the MUA and then go after the rest of the union movement. And he failed with the MUA. And I think he followed through with his plan anyway with the work choices yes. legislation. Yes. That was a stretch too far. After, yep. And for a lot of Australians that were seeing their grandchildren, for example, being treated terribly at work, you know, not even being able to share what their conditions were at work, you know, mm. their arrangements for fear of breaking the law in doing that, they, they said, you've gone too far now. And so, but there's a there's a something here that we'll come back to the voice later, if you like. But yeah, we certainly will. Yeah. The, but the tactic, this was something that was by design, and it was to soften up the Australian public before they moved in the mercenaries onto the wharves. And mm, okay, to, and you're seeing mm. a replication of that, but we'll we'll get to that in a moment. One other thing that you have spoken out on, and and really quite beautifully, is on masculinity, and especially you know about First Nations men. And you've got an incredible book called Dear Son that came out a couple of years ago where you get Indigenous men to write letters to their sons or, or their fathers. You've said that black men have very much been demonised in this country and that, you know, and I really do notice there's sort of a floodlight on black men in our culture unless they're throwing a football around a field. But then, of course, they're under the spotlight as well, aren't they? You know, if they do something wrong, the racist slurs come out. And shame is a really big thing, I think, and that's something that I know you've written about for black men in this country. What have you had to overcome to be where you are now as a father of five kids, I think it is, and a spokesperson and a mentor? Yeah, five children. There's a stereotype and it's the reason why I wrote the book. There is a stereotype about Indigenous men that comes from several different things Firstly, when I was, I'm 45, in my time in school, we were basically taught that my forefathers, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander forefathers were savages and unintelligent and that the, the colonialists that came and colonised this country were our saviours. 
and, and while, you know, the non-Indigenous children, the white children in, in the school were taught that their forefathers were, you know, explorers and, and scientists, scientists and, yeah. and our saviours, there's also the way that um, the Northern Territory intervention uh, in 2007, it was mm. John Howard, he basically announced to the entire nation that the social ills in our communities, in those remote communities in the Northern Territory, were an Aboriginal problem. That deserved, not a systemic problem. Not a systemic problem. Not something that was a result of traumas from colonisation, forced assimilation, stolen generations, and a loss of hope mm. as well in communities, failed policies and harmful laws, but announced to the entire nation that child abuse and, and those, those ills in those communities were an Aboriginal problem that deserved the Racial Discrimination Act being suspended to do what he did. Non-Indigenous people in that time, and, and you know, Johnny Little writes about it. He's he's from Central Australia. He's an Arundel man, and he talks about how he observed when non-Indigenous people seeing a, an Aboriginal man with their child, looking at them yeah. with suspicious eyes, as if that child needed protection from him because of you know who he was, because of their culture and heritage. And then lastly, the other uh, driving force, you know, that causes this stereotype is things in the media like the Bill Leak cartoons oh, um, yeah. back in 2005, I think it was, or the Bill Leak cartoons that, you know, just de- the example is the one that depicts a, an Aboriginal man, you know, as the father, a, a policeman holding a black boy by the scruff of the neck and saying to the Aboriginal man, you need to take responsibility for your children and the Aboriginal man saying, all right, what's his name then? You know, yeah. as if he didn't even know his son's name and he's holding a can, you know, which, a, you know, and, a, a yeah. can of beer. Just, you know, blatantly racist cartoons mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, there's been a number of those over the years, cartoons like that, and we're all meant to laugh along with it, aren't we? Because that's the Australian way. You don't have a sense of humour. I think the other thing that happens with Indigenous men is that you've got, you know, Indigenous women in some ways have maintained their role as mothers and Indigenous men in terms of having their role in the community, it's been very much watered down by shame, by not having employment opportunities, you know, often in these remote localities. And I think that's had quite a bit to do with the disenfranchisement of of Indigenous men and we don't have a discussion around it as much as we do around the plight of Indigenous women. It's it's often mm. left behind somewhat. Yeah, it's a... It's a purposeful thing because when you mm. take away, you know, the family unit and the community unit, when you take away the pride that Indigenous men have in what they contribute to the community and to a family, you open the family up for exploitation. You open the land up for exploitation. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's been a purposeful thing. The book at the same time, you know, I, I call it an act of defiance to celebrate who we are as, as First Nations yeah. men. But it also, at the same time, you know, the men are, are, were generous to write letters to their sons in this book, but they also, we also acknowledge that gender violence and those behaviours like toxic masculinity, you know, these things are, 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 are men, right? Mm, they're and we real. need to change they're our culture yeah. and we need to change the way that we treat women and, and, other, and other genders. 
And it's for us to call that out as well. And it's okay to be vulnerable. Mm. I wrote poetry in the book, you know, to, to sort of to demonstrate that to, to young men and to also to soften it up between the, the letters, you know. Yeah, yeah. I know it was received really well. And, and, and we can have both discussions. You know, mm. about the work that needs to be done in Indigenous communities amongst the men to, to address these issues. And we can also have the conversation about assisting and supporting Indigenous men to get to a point of feeling, well, love for themselves, you know? Yeah, and, and that's got to be good for our communities and our families. Mm, absolutely. absolutely. Well, look, let's move on to the voice. It's an issue that's close to my heart. I'm very moved by the movement. I needed to declare that up front. But I want you to imagine, and it's very hard for you because you've done so many interviews as a representative of all of this and incredibly erudite speaker on it, but I'd like you to imagine that you're explaining it to somebody from overseas who really doesn't have that much background on the Indigenous situation here nor the voice itself. How would you explain it to them if you were down at the pub tonight? How would you explain what this voice business is? Well, firstly, the present situation is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have a life expectancy of almost 10 years less than other Australians. And in the world, proportionately, Indigenous people in this country are the most incarcerated people on the planet. There is a, a massive gap in many other measures about education and employment children are still being taken from their families and their culture. And if I can just add to that, because I, as, as you know, Thomas, I foster Indigenous kids, which is contentious, you know, and I'm very aware of that, but it's a very imperfect situation. But there are around about 42,000 foster kids in Australia and a little over half are Indigenous. Mm. And there's a whole range of reasons, of course, for that, but that's another one of the, the pillars of the, the closing the gap issue that Australia's been trying to address now for over a decade. Um, but, yes, please continue. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so there are all these obvious measures that show that it, there's, a, there's a great gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And... It is because of the way that colonisation happened in this country and it's because it's what was described, W.E. Stanner uh, a, gave a lecture in the Boyer Lectures, but it's the Great Australian Silence. And basically that Indigenous people were here has been ignored and we have refused to have this conversation amongst ourselves as Australians for a very long time. And to justify colonisation, you know, this country has had to do that. Uh, to mm. justify the dispossession, Australia has had to do that. And so what we're talking about with the voice here is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been excluded from the founding document of this country, the Constitution, since Federation in 1901. And uh, Indigenous people had an opportunity in 2017 to come together and set the priority that we would propose to the rest of the country. And we proposed a voice so that we can be heard and that is a form of recognition that we exist which doesn't happen right now. Yeah, and this was something that came about after extensive consultations with elders and communities around the country, right? Like it wasn't just a couple of people in a boardroom going, hey, how about we try this? This has been an ongoing conversation. Nothing else has worked. That's where we're at. Everything that 
has been tried so far has not worked. That closing the gap idea, you know, and the gap being the gap between white Australia and the First Nations people, in most of those, I think is it 17 factors, the gap has enlarged. Hmm. It has not closed. So we've got to do something. And so from what I understand, the voice came about as a measure that could address this. Yeah, so I would say to that person not from Australia that Indigenous people have struggled through all this time to be heard. We have stood up like any other human group would do. We had frontier wars when, you know, colonisation was spreading across the country. We have established representative bodies to speak um, on our behalf in a coherent and informed way. We have strived um, with protests and other actions to to change the direction of this country so that it would embrace who we are as Indigenous people and respect who we are as Indigenous people and include us in the politics and the decision-making of this country in a proper way. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Uluru Statement from the Heart was a document, a beautiful kind of statement that was put together and the the idea of the voice came out of that. It was one of three invitations mm. to Australia that were was proposed. So, yeah, just yeah. so that people know the background. Yeah. And so when with this struggle one of the things that happened was in 2015 as the gap was widening mm. in all these measures in that crisis 39 aboriginal and torres strait islander leaders from around the country proposed a meeting with the prime minister and the opposition leader and that meeting happened in kirribilli house and the kirribilli statement was made and it said two things firstly it said in regards to constitutional recognition we want a substantive form of constitutional recognition, not just symbolic, something that gives greater fairness to our mm. people. And secondly, we want a referendum council established to take the question back to our communities about how we wanted to be empowered, how we wanted to be recognised, and to the broader Australian public. So the referendum council was established. It ran 13 regional dialogues. It was led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And those dialogues chose delegates that came together in the heart of the country at Uluru. And that is where the Uluru Statement was made, which proposed 
a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament yep. and a Makarata Commission to do truth-telling and agreement-making. A Makarata is essentially a truth-telling or truth-accepting process, right? Yeah, it's a dispute resolution process, basically, an ancient dispute res- resolution process that is comes from the Yolnu people in northeast Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. And I'm sure that all of the First Nations in Australia had a similar word and process uh, as Makarata. Mm. And I say that because in this country, on this continent, we have hundreds of unique First Nations languages. And I'm not talking about different dialects here. I'm talking unique languages. And it indicates, as experts say, that we were masters of dispute resolution. How else could these languages have evolved? And we must have understood what country we belong to. Not so much about possessing and exploiting country, but what country we cared for. Mm. And it says a lot about our culture as, uh, to go back to what I was saying about what we were taught in school, um, that we weren't savages and we weren't unintelligent. Mm. We had an advanced culture and civilization. And sophisticated processes for living together on a, on a very harsh land back then. So yeah, just to, to clear things up, there was the Uluru Statement from the Heart that, you know, came about after a long process of official and also regional collaborative discussions. I mean, extensive work was put into it. Then the Uluru Statement was read out and from that three suggestions were made to have a voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution, and this is what we're going to talk about in a moment, a Makarata and Treaty. And out of all of that, the next step that came about was the decision was made to go ahead with the voice, not at the exclusion of Makarata and Treaty, but as a let's just get this thing done. And so a lot of emphasis has been put on that. So that's what is going to be uh, put to the Australian people at a referendum. Every Australian will have to vote and correct me if I'm wrong, we're looking at October, November timing. It'll be by the end of this year. And we are going to be asked a very simple question and it's in keeping with how all changes to the Constitution come about. So a referendum only happens when we need to make a change to the Constitution. 44 have been put to the Australian people, only eight have got passed because it's a, a very high bar for it to pass. It's a, what is it, a majority of votes in a majority of states to succeed. And a majority overall. And, a a ma- majority. and it's a double majority, you're right, so then a majority overall. So it's a hard standard. But it's been done before and it happens quite beautifully. It happens elegantly. It happens when we really are ready for it. And I personally believe this is going to be one such referendum. So I just want to put that in context. So what we're really talking about with The Voice is one of the three proposals, invitations, and it's it's the one that needs to go to a referendum because it entails changing the constitution. And there's a number of things there that I want to touch on in a moment. But could you actually outline the sort of the limited but really quite defined things that this voice will do? So if we vote yes and we change the constitution, what will it actually put into the constitution? Well, it's very much as the question says. Uh, the question is basically um, do you agree in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the first peoples, to establish an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? What the referendum is asking us is if we agree with the principle 
that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should have a say before decisions are made about them. About them. There's two things I want to pick up from on that. First of all is you're not going to be having a voice and a take on everything, like parking metres and, I don't know, whatever it might be. It's on the issues that are fundamentally affecting, you know, First Nations people. That's what representative bodies do. They only have so much time and capacity. That's it. The Maritime Union doesn't comment on, you know, what plumbers do, for example. The Metals Industry Association, doesn't for example, doesn't talk about nursing, right? Mm. So, <laughs> so that's the first thing. The other thing that you mentioned in that explanation is that we're voting on the principle. So this is something that I'm going to drill down into a lot because criticisms from the no camp, you know, and there's a significant no camp emerging that I, I think we just need to, to be aware of, really stem from this idea of focusing on a whole range of things that are irrelevant because let's, I just want to really emphasise to listeners, what we're voting on is a principle. So it's the idea of Indigenous peoples having a say in issues affecting them because and I'm going to jump to the next point here because it's really relevant and required, it has been shown that when First Nations people do have input into decisions affecting them, the outcomes are way, way better. I just want to stall on that for a little moment, Thomas. That has been established, hasn't it? There's been a number of studies, a lot of research to show that what we're talking about here works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, examples are how COVID was handled in communities, right. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through Ken White, the minister at the time, had some agency over that. We saw results, you know, or or the protection of those communities and very low numbers of infection and, and fatalities because Indigenous people in those communities controlled how we handled COVID. Another example is Koori courts where elders are involved in the justice system and the hearings, uh, you see much lower rates of recidivism and those types of things. Also, uh, Aboriginal birthing programs where, you know, cultural birth processes and, and methods are used and you see much lower rates of infant mortality. These are, are examples of just how important it is to listen to Indigenous people. There are common issues across all of our communities that a, a voice would influence and, and guide the government on. Mm. Housing is a common issue across all of our communities. The justice system is an issue for, for Indigenous people across the country. The way that programs are run, you know, where funding goes to. There's many things for the voice to engage in that our people will expect the voice to engage with it's not going to engage with you know as we mentioned before and as, as was mentioned the, the rba you know and interest oh, rates yeah. and like uh, indigenous people will expect that we tackle those issues that are most important to us on the ground yeah so there's just a couple more things i want to get you to explain as to what the voice is before we move on to what it isn't. I did a bit of a call out and somebody actually asked, it was Blair Stafford on Instagram, who decides the makeup of the representatives of the voice? So that's something that I think is a detail that has been set out. Could you answer that one and also give us a feel for some of the other details that have been established already in what we know going into this referendum? Yeah, it'll be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that choose representatives 
those representatives will have a set term for accountability and the way that people will be chosen and the regions that they'll be chosen from or electorates are going to be negotiated with Aboriginal communities. They're going to be consulted after the referendum. Which is the appropriate way. I'm just going to keep coming back to this. We are voting on the principle, the the broad-based, almost ethical and moral principle of the idea of they should be recognised as the First Nations people and should have a voice on things that are affecting them in in a dastardly way. So... These kinds of details, they're yet to come. And I'm going to throw in here, this is going to be something that the parliament decides. So it's not going to be Aboriginal people determining all of these details. The details will be determined by the Australian parliament, so it means the Liberal Party, the Nats, everybody who's been elected by all Australians. Yeah, with Indigenous people. Yep. So with the establishment of that principle that Indigenous people should be heard in the establishment of the model they would negotiate and, and consult with Indigenous people. That's it. And, but they'll be and consulting, the, and, and I'm going to stop you again because that's yeah. another thing that this debate gets stalled on, is that the Indigenous people will be consulting to various MPs, to the Parliament of the mm. day, but they don't have veto power. Absolutely The Parliament not. will be making final decisions. Of course there's going to be a fairly strong imperative to listen yeah. You know, and take on board the advice, hmm. but they don't have to because that's the way Parliament and the Constitution work together. Yeah, I mean, the, the provision that was announced on the 23rd of March that will be going to debate in the Parliament that will most likely be going to the referendum is quite simple. In recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first peoples, yep. there shall be an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice may make representations to the Parliament and Executive Government. May, yep, about, representations. Yep, <laughs> and on matters that r- relate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the Parliament decides all matters about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice, including the composition, powers, functions and procedures. And this is the way that our constitution works. We set up the principle, as we keep saying, the principle that Indigenous people should have a say. Yeah, we reckon this is a good idea. That it's not a right to veto, you know, it's, it can make representations. There's nothing about a right to veto or, you know, holding up the government processes. It's advice to the parliament. The rest of it is decided by the parliament because it needs to be flexible enough to improve over time. You don't want to, to the put how many representatives and how much funding and all that sort of thing in the constitution and need to hold a referendum to see the organisation improve with the needs of the people. Yeah. It's like if if a country needs to set up an army, do in principle we agree we need an army? Yeah. You're not going to hold up the process while people bicker about the colour of the uniform. You know what I mean? I've read the constitution a number of times. It sets up that the parliament has the power to collect taxes doesn't say how they choose who the tax commissioner is. What the tax um, rate is going to be. How much tax they're going to collect. <laughs> you know, those things are, need to be flexible. And we need it to vote up, on them as yeah, Australians. That's you know. right. And we hold out who we choose to represent us to account through the democracy. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to keep emphasising this referendum, right, anything to do with the Constitution, we only get to vote on the, the vibe you know, the broad concept, yeah. the, the, this in principle matters to us and it, and it is, should be in the constitution. Should the parliament 
and the, the executive government that implements the policies listen to Indigenous people? Hmm. Yes or no? It's not unreasonable. This is the <laughs> extraordinary thing. It's quite beautiful and I can't believe it's not already in the Constitution and that's the point. Australia is an outlier in not having the First Nations people represented in its Constitution. And that's what children say. Why haven't we granted Indigenous people this fairness right? before? Yeah, because you work with a lot of kids, don't you, in, on all of this and educating them on, on First Nations issues. Yeah, I've got a children's book about the Uluru yep. Statement, Finding Our Heart. and I'll put a link in the show notes because um, I've mm. seen it in bookshops everywhere. I recommend and it's at you know, my foster kids' school. I saw it in the principal's <laughs> yeah. office. I recommend it as a starting point. If you're struggling with the basics of this, read the kids' book yeah, by well, Thomas. Yeah, children, like they, they were drumming fairness into them all the time, right? Mm, they they yeah. get it. You know, you should talk to people before you make decisions about them. And secondly, they have an innate understanding of what makes us unique as Australians. Yeah. So a couple more rapid-fire questions that have come through on my Instagram feed. One person has asked, is this a third chamber of parliament, yes or no? No, absolutely not. It's not even close, is it? <laughs> like okay. there's not much more it's to an say. It's not. It's body. Okay. <laughs> Another person has actually asked, and I think this is a really interesting question, what is the basis of people's reticence or what's the base, real basis of the, the no campaign? The person wrote to me and said, I just don't understand. I think I understand why we would want to say yes. And I think that's the intuitive impulse, right, of Australians. But then they hear that there's people opposing it and they're trying to wonder why, like have they missed a memo here? I don't understand the people that are leading the no case because unless it's driven purely by their own profile building and for their own career aspirations and whoever is backing them, I don't understand who's backing them. I do understand that it's organisations like the IPA and the CIS, right-wing think tank, so I guess they have an ideological view of the world that is, is very hard to understand. For other people, I think it, it boils down to fear. And confusion, and surely. Confusion. Yeah. And, and confusion, you know, the safest thing to do is say no. Um, and that's where the no case has a bit of an easy task. They don't need to be consistent. They don't need to be truthful. They just need to create enough confusion so that people are afraid that they're doing the wrong thing mm. if they vote yes. That is what drives people. To counter that, we need to keep it simple. Remember, it's the principle that we're enshrining. We need to explain to people that it is the right thing to do, mm. that it is safe, that it's not a third chamber, it's not a right to veto, and it's just a decent and fair thing to do. I don't think a memo has been missed for anybody who feels intuitively like this makes sense as a yes vote. It really is sort of, you know, in podcast land, Thomas, there's a phrase called just asking questions or jacking. And by jacking, you insert doubt and fear. It doesn't matter what question you ask, right? It actually just poses doubt and fear. And sometimes that's all you have to do if you're in opposition to something. Yeah, and I ask the listeners to take notice of that pattern, you know, yes. of them same questions coming over and over again and the answers given but they keep asking them same questions. Yeah. It really is a, a strategic It's a approach. tactic, a, yeah, tactic a tactic of confusion yes. as you say. Okay, um, another question is do you have a sense of the scale of people and organisations such as banks and insurance agencies, et cetera, who are supporting the yes vote? 
I believe we have the ingredients for change here, and that is that the there are many organisations from across the political spectrum that support this. There's so, banks and so on, yeah, right? Yeah, like from the biggest out. banks, the NAB, for example, have been great supporters. All of the top law firms. Business Council of Australia? Uh, Business Council of Australia, you mm. know, on behalf of corporates, uh, big supporters. The NGOs, Aboriginal control organisations, you know, the health bodies, peak bodies, all of those frontline service organisations have supported this, Fred Hollows, through to unions, you know, mm. and, and my union that has supported the work that I've done for the last six years. They've covered my salary, they've covered my travel and accommodation for six solid years. While you work on this. Just to work on this. And so it's it's from across the political spectrum, you know, organisations that are at loggerheads on on many other matters uh, are united in supporting this. this. And that's the ingredients for change, I think. Mm, okay. I've got one last question for you. I guess I've got to ask, what will The Voice bring to Australia, in your opinion, both to Indigenous Australia but also all Australians? Although I'm almost tempted to ask instead, perhaps we should flip it this way, it's more the inverse, I suppose. How will we as Australians feel if we wake up and the vote comes in as a no? Wow. I mean, every time I think about this, you know, there's all sorts of emotions. It's sadness that I feel. It's not even anger. I mean, it's sadness. And, you know, it, it brings a tear to the eye to think that we, I mean, imagine being a teacher, you know, or even just telling your children, teaching your children that at this moment in time, in 2023, we said no to recognising the existence of the Indigenous peoples that have been connected to this place for over 65,000 years. And imagine saying to them that we said no collectively as Australians to the fairness of listening to those people. Mm. It it would be just a horrible thing to wake up to that we've failed in this. And I, and I say to the listeners, don't just vote yes, but work hard as Indigenous people did to provide this invitation and this opportunity Work as hard as we did to put your hand out like we did to other Australians and bring them along with us. It's unimaginable to be in a country that has officially said no to recognition and fairness. Yeah, yeah. I think about the question a lot myself as well. I, it'd be a real stain on our character and I think if we go flip it back to the positive I also think, and I say this to people, imagine how proud we will feel if we wake up and the majority, you know, the double majority has said, yes, let's well, let's change this, the, let's fix this. It's the greatest gift we could give to the following generations that mm. we have achieved this in our time. Yeah. Like what a great gift to, you know, future Australians that we have done this and we haven't left them that burden of an ignorance to our colonial past, you know, an ignorance to our Indigenous uh, heritage and culture. You see, you think of the Constitution like this as well, not just the rule book, but it's like our DNA, you know. It's what constitutes us mm. as Australians. So mm. it is a genuine sharing of that heritage and culture when, binds we, us. When, we, when we get this vote up. And, yeah. you know, I want to wake up 
the following morning. With a resounding yes. Yeah, yeah. Air I mean, punch. And, mm. and it is a unifying moment. I mean, there'll be divisive tactics in the coming months. But we say that this is a unifying thing because it is. And here's something to leave listeners with to understand the, the place that Indigenous people are coming from. Research shows that the driving motivation for Indigenous people to support this is they believe that this is a unifying moment, yeah, that this right. would be a unifying moment. Mm. And that is true to our culture. You know, we are a sharing collective culture and that is why I think the Uluru Statement was endorsed so emphatically, you know, that it invites the Australian people to share who we are. It's a beautiful opportunity and you've explained it so well. Thank you so much, Thomas Mayo. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, so as I say from the outset, I am a supporter of the Yes campaign, but I do think it's very important to listen to the other side in these kinds of debates. It's an important one. The other Indigenous voices predominantly dispute the ordering of the rollout of the three components that form the Uluru Statement, so the Makarata Treaty and the Voice. But I guess I'm personally satisfied with Thomas's answer to this. Nothing is stopping the rollout of the Makarata or Treaty. In fact, they are already rolling out in states and territories around Australia. But it makes sense to focus on the voice as well and right now because it can be done now. It can be done immediately. So it's not either or and it's not this then that. It's yes to all of it. As to the other questions that are coming out of the no camp, they really are moot points in my opinion. They can in the main be answered by the literal wording of the referendum question itself. So for example, no, the voice can't veto laws or enforce their recommendations because as it says on the packet, it advises only. Parliament can choose to take it or leave the recommendation. Some of the other no arguments are answered by a basic understanding of what a referendum is and how a constitution works. So layers of detail can't and shouldn't be given in advance because it's not how it works. We are being asked a question of principle only. Do we think First Nations people should be recognised and be able to give advice on things that matter to them, that affect them? Yes or no? That's it. Parliament, elected by us in elections, and yes, they're members of the Liberal Party, the Nats, the Greens, Labor, in whatever mix is in power at the time, they, it, decides the details. We will hope that, you know, Parliament will listen to First Nations suggestions on all of it, like on the makeup of the representatives, and at this stage, the Labor Party and various legal bodies are saying that they are sound suggestions. So there you go. Members of the Liberal Party know all of this and they've been reminded of it repeatedly. Plus, they've been included in dozens of advisory meetings on all kinds of details over the last decade. And let's not forget, they were in power for the past 10 years. So we're in a position to ask a lot of questions if they wanted to and needed to. So I'm going to say it straight. All of this, we need more details stuff. It's a tactic. And sadly, it's a very effective one. All that said, I do encourage everyone listening here to vote with their conscience. And perhaps if I can gently invite this, vote according to how you want to wake up on the day the tally comes in. How will you want it announced to the rest of the world what we have decided for our country? 
And I always think it is interesting to phrase things in this way because as Australians we do get a sense of our identity when we see ourselves viewed through others' eyes. And finally, one last invite. I've been personally touched and inspired from the first time I heard the Uluru Statement from the Heart by the spiritual, or perhaps you might want to call it ethical, essence and thinking through the ramifications of the whole movement. It's a gentle and patient invite. It's a hand-extended message. And I've not always been sure that white Australia deserves such compassion and patience from Indigenous people, but we have been gifted it. As I listened to this conversation with Thomas, I was struck by the way that he was so quick to clarify and gently that not all of the Liberal Party is against the voice. If you catch him speaking in the media, he never blames anyone or gets impatient. And it's the same with many of the advocates. And I think it might stem from the original intent, the vibe set out in the beautifully wild Uluru Statement. Australia and the world, I feel, will learn a lot from this campaign and the process about Indigenous systems, about systemic change, about a different way to do dialogue and negotiation, about creating a new future. Okay, we'll finish there. There are many, many links in the show notes for this one, including a link to the previous episode I did with Professor Megan Davis and also my interview with the head of the Ethics Centre, Simon Longstaff, who presents a very intriguing ethical reason for voting yes. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's a, it's a big one. Please do spread the word, share this episode around the place, and I'll be back with more wildness next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.